Hello, 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 moguls. To uncover some of the secrets to hit making in Hollywood, in this episode, I will speak facts and spill all of the Kashmiri pink tea in this thrilling conclusion of the two-episode saga, Gerwig's Barbie Quirls, the bait-and-switch of white feminism, and pink dollar power. Rated PG-13, the billion-dollar phenomenon Barbie is based on the doll invented by first-gen American entrepreneur Ruth Handler, because as we learned from Hamilton, immigrants get... Directed by Greta Gerwig, Barbie stars Margot Robbie, who also served as a producer, and features the Place Beyond the Pine star Ryan Gosling. Welcome to Mahogany's, the movie business podcast for storytellers and film lovers, because success means everything, no matter whom you have to share it with. I'm your narrator, writer, and researcher, Dr. Robin J. Hayes. Barbie's official logline is, Barbie suffers a crisis that leads her to question her world and her existence. Please note that I am a film producer, writer, and director, so Mahogany's is a filmmaker-friendly podcast. I don't get into casting things as flops for the following reasons. One, every artist knows in the creative process, hindsight is 2020. Two, filmmaking is the most collaborative art form which makes it simultaneously the most thrilling and the most exasperating. No one person has all the say in every decision required to shepherd a movie from idea to screen. Third, worldwide box office on a first theatrical run is not the only measure of a film's success. Jennifer's Body, directed by Karen Kusama, is just one example of how a compelling cinematic work can take years to connect with audiences. A film's potential for additional streams of income should always be considered by producers. These can include video on demand, broadcast licensing, airlines, merchandise, and video games. If it's an original film, there's also the value of the IP itself. Last, Making any film is a miracle. We all start off convinced we're on the path to greatness, like Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise. But often, by the end of the grueling filmmaking process, many of us would be relieved to have Ed Wood's Plan 9 from outer space. With all that in mind, I offer two money-making takeaways from Barbie's reception in this episode, as well as a deep dive into the film's biggest supporting mahogany, or black woman character, President Barbie, portrayed by Issa Rae. Our first takeaway, which we began in part one of this saga, the previous episode of Mahogany's. Most relevant to the internet's criticisms of Barbie is how film theorist 
Laura Mulvey, presumed that the solution to the male gaze and its subjection of women was to replace it with a female G-A-Z-E, which would still be anchored in whiteness, wealth, and straightness. And this, moguls, is what the legendary children today call white feminism. Now, white feminists are not all Anglo women because, among many other things, Jane Fonda. And it's important to note that about 60% of white women voted for Donald Trump's presidency. Twice. Anybody can be a white feminist. However, people who are from lower income families and the global majority usually are not. According to book author Rafia Zakaria, a white feminist is someone who refuses to consider the role that racial privilege has played and continues to play universalizing white women's concerns, agendas, and beliefs as being those of all feminism and all feminists. Wait a minute. Universalizing? What in the $20 verb? There are, of course, many truly universal aspects of the human experience. Sibling rivalry, the desire for belonging and recognition, Rihanna. <laughs> However, Zakaria refers to something called false universalism. See, what often happens with things like white supremacy, sexism, and heteronormativity is that desires and perspectives that are specific to groups in power become labeled as normal and appropriate for everybody. For example, until very recently, hair product aisles in stores were really just white women's hair product aisles because there wasn't anything black women could use that were sold in them. Hosiery and bandages labeled nude were only invisible on very light skin. The original Barbie doll was marketed to all girls, but she only looked like a few Scandinavians. When audience exit surveys concluded 65% of Barbie's opening weekend audience were women, those surveys left the impression that black women were as excited about the Barbie film as white and white identified Latinas were. And that wasn't true. When we engage in false universalism, we create the impression that one group is normal and ideal and everybody else is invisible or a problem. A slew of other well-regarded theorists, including Alice Walker and Audre Lorde, have described in great detail why white feminism is not likely to solve gender inequality. It gaslights some women into believing that their gender is the only thing standing in between them and the power and privileges of the old boys network, which they know well through their fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons. As a result, white feminists can be the ultimate cool girls, gleefully participating in racism, transphobia, classism, and other forms of oppression while stepping on the dreams and bags of more vulnerable women to achieve their goals. <laughs>
Hillary for president. Yes. Raise for the Filipina nanny? No. But I wish you well. It's as if white feminists never saw the series finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer when Sarah Michelle Geller's character realizes that the assertion, there can only be one, is just the invention of powerful men who don't want all women to unite. This exclusionary form of feminism discredits the fight for gender equality within the global majority, smaller income, and LGBTQ communities because it defines the issue and womanhood in general as for straight, rich, white women only. Just as the leadership of racial justice and labor movements often define their goals as for men only and elites in the LGBTQ community, well, you see where I'm going with all this. Those of us who identify with more than one underrepresented community and therefore have what's called an intersectional identity must often consider a Faustian bargain. If we're black and women, gay and indigenous, Latina and trans, we must choose between grand rising to the unflinching patriarchy of our blue collar, global majority and or queer communities or bow down to the Tory Burch flat-wearing tokenism, cultural imperialism, and wage theft of white feminism. In the blockbuster movie context, black women are invited to support the black male hero of Black Panther or the white woman hero of Barbie. But rare is the hidden figures occasion when our aspirations, struggles, and contributions take center screen seen as valid in their own right, independent of how we serve anybody else. For most straight women and LGBTQ people, all pink folk are not kin folk. So did Barbie earn as much as it could have? Moguls, my award-winning documentary, Black and Cuba, Follow street smart Ivy League students as they adventure to hip hop performances and block parties on the enigmatic island. Black in Cuba is now streaming on Amazon's Prime Video. Barbie's scorched earth marketing campaign revealed that Mattel and Warner Brothers were willing to embrace the gender and sexuality conversation that the doll ignites. The film's tagline was, if you love Barbie, this movie is for you. If you hate Barbie, this movie is for you. Perhaps most importantly, through all the brand collabs, memes, and trailers, Warner Brothers championed the brand's hot pink aesthetic in all of its campiness while winking at the style movement known as Barbiecore. Barbiecore celebrates the vibrant, ferociously girlish and deliberately artificial qualities that Barbie pioneered. It's been embraced since the 2000s by followers of socialite survivor Paris Hilton and viral songwriter and rapper Nicki Minaj. The aesthetic is particularly appealing to women and queer people who don't satisfy the male G-A-Z-E 
and as a consequence, are viciously bullied for their curves, ethnic looks, flamboyant swish, and lack of affluence. Barbiecore affirms the value and possibility of being self-made in terms of one's beauty and one's bank account. By blowing up Barbiecore in high-end fashion shows, red carpets, and Instagram, and recruiting under 40 faves Issa Rae, America Ferreira, and Simu Liu, Warner Brothers signaled that the Barbie movie was not a white feminist endeavor. The Malibu Dreamhouse was calling us home. The impression given was that Barbie intended to please a pink, flag-flying, psychographic audience that the children refer to as the Gwirls, not girls, G-W-O-R-L-S. Gwirls are not all women and never only people who were assigned the female gender at birth. Gwirls are remarkably feminine, self-constructed women, men, and non-binary folk who are usually not born into privilege. Averse to the natural, understated, and oppressive, girls came to slay because they don't often fit into any of society's boxes. While the term may be new, the experience is not. Mae West, Billie Holiday, Marilyn Monroe, Diana Ross, Dolly Parton, Cardi B, Saucy Santana, Material Girls! Gigi Getty and Lil Nas X are all girls, and as girls, aka femmes, aka girls, gays, and theys, we real life dolls have to do the heavy lifting of imagining our dreams as valid because dominant institutions often don't. Since Barbie's opening weekend, the girls have assembled, sometimes with our kins and moms in full Barbie core drag, pouring over a billion pink dollars into Warner Brothers coffers. What we received in return was, well, listen, there's no question that Barbie is an astoundingly creative and commercial achievement. Gerwig's whip smart humor, technical prowess, and heartfelt camaraderie with women as a director are in full effect. The film's straightforward, touching portrayal of patriarchy's impact on women has provoked a myriad of important convos around kitchen tables, pulpits, and group chats throughout the world. Robbie's genius as a producer sparkles through the box office returns and the way she balanced the concerns of Mattel and Warner Brothers to shepherd this project to screen after 14 years. All facts. Moguls, I'm not going to say Barbie is a white feminist movie. But I will say that white feminists think it is and have embraced it accordingly. Why are black girls, their siblings from the global majority, and more inclusive feminists much less enthusiastic? In terms of marketing, Barbie kind of pulled a familiar bait and switch. Whoa. 
The first indicator to skeptics that Barbie might have a white feminist perspective was the soundtrack single, Dance the Night Away. I find this disco jam to be a bop. It's performed by British Albanian pop star Dua Lipa and produced by chart-topping, straight, white real estate heir Mark Ronson. I mean, I have eyes and ears. Of course I like Dua Lipa. However, earlier this year, when Beyonce accepted a Best Dance Electronic Recording Grammy for the album Renaissance, which she crafted as a tribute to her gay African-American uncle Johnny, she thanked the queer community for, quote, inventing this genre, end quote. Indeed, black and brown folks are well aware that disco was innovated and popularized by black, Latina, and LGBTQ folk. We also know that respected black musicians have accused Ronson of plagiarism and cultural appropriation. For example, the fun double claps in Dance the Night Away will sound very familiar to anyone who's heard African-American woman Patrice Russian's classic, Forget Me Nuts, or the Men in Black theme song by Will Smith, which heavily sampled Russian with her permission and within her price point. Ronson's presentation of disco, though surely well-intentioned, was probably a big red flag for some of the girls. We made the influential art form of disco, and yet this lucrative opportunity to display our culture was not for us or by us. What may have impeded some positive Latina word of mouth and our repeat visits to the theater are certain aspects of the character Gloria, portrayed by the icon America Ferreira. Casting Ferreira is a particular stroke of genius because the esteem in which she is held by Latinas under 40 cannot be overstated. Ferreira has starred in four cultural landmarks. The critically acclaimed indie, Real Women Have Curves, the YA juggernaut, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, with the Gilmore Girls' Alexis Blydell, who's also Latina. On the small screen, Ferreira stole our hearts as Ugly Betty and produced and starred in the late-stage capitalism satire, Superstore. The Latina audience is over-indexed at the box office, which means my Latina siblings attend the movies at a higher rate than our proportion of the population would suggest. In addition, studies show Latina audience members tend to organize the entire family to go to a movie in theaters. So to see La America Ferreira even in this supporting role? No doubt las tías, las abuelas y las hijas estuvieron presente a Barbie. However, on the Barbie screen, there were no authentic elements of Ferreira's culture or that of her character's daughter, portrayed by young Boricua Ariana Greenblatt. No Honduran flag decal dangling from her Chevy SUV's rearview mirror. No dancing it out to Carol G. Although the Colombian singer is featured on the film's soundtrack with the song Watati. 
No homemade pastelitos or arroz con gandules for lunch at Ferreira's office cubicle. There are zero references to the Barbie based on Frida Kahlo, the highest valued Latin American artist in history, or the original Latina Barbie, Teresa. Some Latinas may have found this cultural erasure especially jarring because if an audience member was unfamiliar with Ferreira or her work, they could easily take in her freckled porcelain skin, straight hair, and unaccented English to mean that she's white. Gerwig's and Bombach's script also makes the confusing choice to jokingly indicate Gloria's husband's whiteness by showing him struggling to speak Spanish. The thing is, many Latines are not fluent in Spanish, either because 70% of us were born in the U.S. or we were actively discouraged from learning in our homes for fear we would not assimilate. A Cal State LA student told NBC News, I identify as a Latina, but yet I get nervous talking to other people in Spanish because I worry that they're going to come for me, saying like, oh, she's whitewashed. Afro-Latine Ariana DuBose turned down auditioning for her Oscar-winning role in West Side Story four different times because she doesn't speak Spanish and therefore did not feel entitled to represent her community. The definition of Latinidad as necessarily Spanish-speaking is generally not considered a laughing matter in the Latina community. In the Barbie film, Gloria starts out as a talented designer who's balancing frustrations at her Mattel workplace with her fragmented relationship with her teen daughter. However, by the end of the film, Gloria seems to abandon her desire for career advancement. She takes on the unpaid responsibility of raising Barbie as a human in the real world. While her relationship with her daughter is improved through her journey, Latinas in the audience might have clocked that this film did not see Ferreira, one of our most cherished icons, through our eyes. Sure, she wasn't framed through the male G-A-Z-E, which would have rendered her a powerless sexual object as a Latina, but Gloria's character does seem to be framed through a white feminist gaze in which she's rendered powerful, but only able to use her capabilities to serve white women. Never a threat to white authority of any gender. Film theorist Laura Mulvey correctly pointed out that the white feminist perspective does not often have access to the studio executives, producers, or directors' chairs. However, our Latina community endures the consequences of white feminism on the regular, in real life. It's an exhausting and sometimes terrifying lens through which Latines, LGBTQ folk, and everybody else in the global majority are permitted to exist only as long as we service white women's clout, fulfillment, and redemption. Some of the hurt caused by white feminism 
stems from its singular obsession with the perceptions and esteem of affluent straight white men. There was abundant and painstaking focus placed on the cultural representation and character arcs of the liberal straight white male characters, Canon Allen, and the inclusion of a man on the screenwriting team. Perhaps anxiety about this Justin Timberlake psychographics acceptance of the project trumped concern about how the Gwirls would spread the word about the film or come back for a sequel. Margot Robbie repeatedly, and I believe sincerely, stated in press interviews for the film that she wanted Barbie to be diverse and inclusive. While watching this film as the only black person in the theater, I couldn't help but wonder if the all white, all straight, all multimillionaire producers of this film were the best people to judge whether or not they had met that goal. My critically acclaimed history book, Love for Liberation, follows activists including Malcolm X, Kathleen Cleaver, and Stokely Carmichael as they journey through the continent and bond with revolutionaries fighting colonialism. Love for Liberation is available wherever books are sold. Before we ask, why didn't anybody say something? Let's be clear, that's not an actor's job. Such input should come from paid consultants or producers. Kate McKinnon, America Ferreira, and Issa Rae were highly visible and hardworking in all the Barbie press coverage, with the goal of attracting their dedicated LGBTQ, Latine, and Black girl followers. However, none of them were credited as producers on this project. Although all three stars are accomplished producers in their own right. In Hollywood, film producers, not movie stars, not directors, have financial equity in a project and the most say over the final product. I'm not saying white feminism drove the economic structure of Barbie, but it's fair to say white feminists would approve of it. By promising inclusion and perhaps appearing to deliver tokenism, Lucky Chap, Warner Brothers, and Mattel may have cost themselves an even more sizable fandom. This leads me to takeaway number one, avoid the inclusion bait and switch. Of course, representation matters. However, in order to get and keep our pink dollars, folks from the global majority expect to see our cultures and aspirations and authentic points of view on screen, not just our diverse bodies. For producers and studio execs, a marketing campaign that pulls an inclusion marketing bait and switch might seem like a seductive compromise that can appease everybody. However, the relative ambivalence that the global majority has for Barbie indicates that the Gwirls are far too hip 
for that game. Mahoganies. Alas, moguls, it's time to discuss the film's primary mahogany character, President Barbie, depicted by Emmy nominee Issa Rae. Much like America Ferreira, it's kind of impossible to overstate both the impact that Issa Rae has had on the representation of Black women on screen, as well as the esteem in which she is held by Black women under 40. With her viral web series Awkward Black Girl and the HBO hit Insecure, Ray advanced two revolutionary ideas. Black women are beautifully, complicatedly human. And Black women are best seen through a Black feminist gaze. In her influential book, The Witch's Flight, scholar Kara Keeling revealed that empowering images of Black femmes can simultaneously disrupt racist, sexist, and heteronormative practices. However, in Hollywood, Black women have been consistently represented as one of four stereotypes. Mammies, enthusiastic servants or terrorized enslaved women, sapphires, angry Black women, usually of the hood rat variety, and Jezebels, mistresses, prostitutes, and strippers. Then, the noble savages, a character initially invented to legitimize colonialism. As a response to the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s, Hollywood gave us a version of the noble savage for black women characters who were, well, basically perfect and sometimes magical. Courageous, stoic, and highly moral civil rights heroines, best friends, co-workers, people who play a key role in a white savior's life, but never seem to have their own obstacles, fears, flaws, or needs, and therefore don't deserve to be discriminated against. In contrast to any of these limited stereotypes, Ray's lovable underachiever character in Insecure would hilariously put her foot in her mouth and wrap her subconscious anxiety in the mirror. For example, So I'm supposed to move on, go high, Michelle Obama? Well, call me Lifetime because I'm bringing the drama. Ray was thoroughly flawed, yet still portrayed as entitled to be the main character in her own story. She enjoyed an all-Black friendship circle and was validated in her search for true love and a successful career on her own terms. A young Black woman as a well-educated three-dimensional character? Sadly, in the 2010s, this was a game changer. Fans of Issa Rae didn't see any of these trailblazing qualities in her President Barbie character. Stunning in her long 3B textured hair, pink ball gown and sash, President Barbie is, well, perfect. Even after the Kens take over Barbie land, her transformation from president to cool girl is not particularly striking. Her presence is not particularly culturally African-American in the film, except for one justifiably angry utterance of the word motherfucker, which to be honest, seems more influenced by the great Oscar winner Samuel L. Jackson's signature catchphrase than any of Ray's previous women-driven work. 
Confusingly, there were no throwbacks to the many glamorous black Barbies in Mattel's history through Ray's character, all of which are cherished and remembered fondly by black women of all ages. From the black power-influenced Christie, 1968, to Julia, inspired by the legend Diane Carroll, moment of silence, in 1969, to Cara Ballerina, a Misty Copeland antecedent in the 70s. In 1980, a doll straightforwardly named Black Barbie premiered as the first designed by an African-American woman, Kitty Perkins. In the conscious 90s, Mattel issued Shawnee and Friends, a series of African Barbies, and Nikki, who appeared in a Mattel animated short to address racism after Breonna Taylor's murder. There have even been Barbies based on Grammy winners Brandy and Destiny's Child, as well as my absolute favorite, the Bob Mackie-inspired Ruby Radiance doll. Ruby. As in RuPaul. Through Gerwig's Barbie, you wouldn't know there's actually a whole-ass Harlem-sized Black neighborhood in Barbieland. A good friend pointed out to me that since in this film, all the Barbies are manifestations of the girls who play with them, wouldn't President Barbie be much more like Issa Rae in real life? From a bougie neighborhood like View Park, Windsor Hills in LA and equal parts glam and ratchet? Perhaps if the film's trailers had shown Rae's character canoodling with Kingsley ben handsome black Ken and wearing Soul Train-inspired Afro puffs for the disco number, box braid vacation hair on the Barbieland beach, and <gasps> relaxed hair during the Ken regime. Maybe our fans would have felt assured that they would feel seen by Barbie in the ways that they wanted to, not through the white feminist G-A-Z-E. See, representing black women as perfect, sure, clearly intended to repair the decades of harm done by Hollywood's cruel and repeated stereotyping, which has legitimated political, economic, cultural, and physical violence. However, these sorts of depictions function more like a mirror image of distorting caricatures than a true alternative. When we're seen as perfect or strong black women, we're articulated as something other than human, without needs, independent aspirations, families, or flaws. In film, the perfect black girl is not more nuanced than the mammy. She has no purpose other than to serve white women. The final takeaway. Much deserved praise has been given to America Ferreira, as well as Gerwig's in Bombach's script for her stirring monologue to various Barbies about the suffering and confusion that patriarchy causes women. I imagine that both Black and Latina audiences were stunned 
that the part of this sequence between Ferreira's human Gloria and Ray's president Barbie had zero discussion of how race and gender intersect. The grim realities of racism and xenophobia require that African-American and Latin women have a very distinct conversation about sexism with each other than white women have among themselves. In fact, Ferreira made it clear in her Bomb AF 2019 TED Talk, My Identity is a Superpower, Not an Obstacle, how exactly this part of the monologue between her Latina character and Black President Barbie should have gone. So I've rewritten it accordingly. Want to hear it? Here it goes. It is literally impossible to be a woman from the global majority. We almost never see anyone who looks like us on TV or in films, but we're American. So we're supposed to believe that anyone can achieve anything, regardless of the color of our skin. We're asked, why don't we sound more Latina or more Black? But we are Latina and Black, so isn't this what that's supposed to sound like? No, they think they know our cultures more than we do and how we should be sexy, but not so sexy, we embarrass our race. We're considered too articulate to be treated like a stereotype, so we don't get the roles they like to put us in. Gangbanger's girlfriend, sassy shoplifter, pregnant hood rat, or chola number two. Our communities tell us to work hard, lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, and assimilate. When we do, we're told we've forgotten who we are and that we are not doing enough to address centuries of oppression, but we still need to speak for millions of people we don't even know. And when they say they want to be inclusive, they usually just mean one of us, and sometimes one of us, either Black or Latina or they don't want either of us because we're too ethnic. So we do the only thing we know how to do, work harder. We bleach our skin, contour our nose, straighten our hair, lose weight, drop coin we don't have on labels to fit into their G-A-Z-E. For our, our troubles, we might get to be seen as perfect, a noble savage, still a cardboard cutout of their imagination but it's inclusive on their terms. If we're extraordinarily lucky, we break through both glass ceilings of gender and race and realize our dreams only to find ourselves isolated because only one of us is allowed in at a time. Only to see our success explained away as a fluke or a hookup or charity. Never a reflection of our personal merit and hard work or an indicator of all the ignored, excluded talent and intelligence in our communities. But we keep going anyway, because we were taught to be treated as equals or die trying. And we're always looking down the ladder at the girls who look like us, who need to see us thrive in the world because that teaches them how to see themselves, how to appreciate their own value how to dream about their futures. Presence creates possibility. But when we look up the ladder, so many times 
We only see women who don't look like us demanding our allegiance and withholding our equity. Or men who do look like us demanding our solidarity and withholding credit for our work. And if we say something in the quietest of tones with a mountain of receipts, here comes the avalanche of microaggressions. Now we're angry, volatile, not a fit, overqualified, underqualified, difficult, lacking ambition, ugly, relying on pretty, overhyped, too fat, too thin, unfuckable, or a whore. Too black, not black enough, too Latin, not Latin enough. If we're with somebody, then we've only succeeded because of them. If we're single, we're just bitter and need to get laid. When we express a desire to be more than a cardboard cutout of somebody else's distorted imagination, we're told we're ungrateful and unrealistic. Our merits never seem to matter as much as how we can simultaneously appease the male and white feminist, G-A-Z-E. This leads me to the final takeaway. Pink dollar power lies in the hands of the girls, not girls. Because of how patriarchy intersects with race, class, sexuality, and transphobia to create different forms of exclusion, all girls are not girls. Although data makes it clear that it's us girls that can get a brand billions, Hollywood and white feminism remains attached to the idea that toxic men, as well as the wives and daughters and sisters who enable them, are necessary to create value just as they held on to the mistaken belief that appeasing white supremacists was the only way to gain international box office. The vitriol that the mitigated Barbie film catches from Fox News, Trump supporters, and other kinds of Karens reveals that there was no pink icing sweet enough to convince them to support a women-driven and women-powered film. Karens cannot get you sufficient coin nor do they have the cultural clout to sway allies into spending their pink dollars in certain ways. The bottom line is best served by giving all the girls a seat at the decision-making table, which will empower them to feel seen through their own G-A-Z-E. It's not Main Street, but Christopher Street, Obama Boulevard, Cesar Chavez Avenue, and Sinead O'Connor Way. Moment of silence. That will. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mahogany's. I'm your narrator, writer, and researcher, Dr. Robin J. Hayes. Please follow this podcast because you don't want to miss the next saga about the Prince film trilogy Purple Rain, Under the Cherry Moon, and Graffiti Bridge. By sharing Mahogany's, You'll amplify the voices of queer, Latine, and Black women podcasters, like me. Also, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and Facebook at mahoganies.podcast. 
I'd love to hear your suggestions about what films and topics you'd like me to dive into. Moguls, until next time, remember, the men love you, the women and non-binary folk love you, and success means everything. Among the films mentioned in this episode, I strongly recommend Barbie, Black Panther, Jennifer's Body, Real Women Half Curves, produced by Effie Brown, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Mahogany's, a Robin J. Hayes podcast, is produced by Ruth Media.